I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I'm delighted to welcome Paul Beatty, author of the 2016 Man Booker winning novel, The Sellout, published by One World. Um, again, congratulations, Paul, and um, thank you to One World as well, not only for publishing The Sellout, but for bringing all of the other wonderful books to the UK. The White Boy Shuffle, Tough, and Slumberland, and they're all there, and they're all available to be signed and bought at the end. Um, yeah, Paul, thank you so much. It's a total delight to have you here. Thank you. Um, thank you also to Lola Ocalosi, who will be talking to Paul this evening. Lola's an English teacher, an award-winning columnist who focuses on race, politics, education and feminism. And she's also editor-at-large for the online platform Media Diversified. Lola, thank you too. Thank you so much. Please join me in a really warm welcome for our guests. Thank you very much. Uh, I think I'm going to kind of just read something from the middle just for a little bit, I guess. There are more cars in Los Angeles County than in any other city in the world. But what no one ever talks about is that half those cars sit on cinder blocks and dirt patches passing for front yards from Lancaster to Long Beach. These not-so-mobile automobiles, along with the Hollywood sign, the Watts Towers, and Aaron Spelling's 56,500 square foot estate are the closest LA gets to approximating the ancient marvels of engineering like the Parthenon, Angkor Wat, the Great Pyramids, and the ancient shrines of Timbuktu. These two and four door rusted pieces of antiquity stand impervious to the winds and acid rains of time. And like Stonehenge, we have no idea what purpose these steel monuments serve. Are they testaments to the bitchin' and infirmary hot rods and lowriders that grace the covers of custom car magazines? Maybe the hood ornaments and tail fins are aligned with the stars and the winter solstice. Maybe they're mausoleums, the resting places of backseat lovers and drivers. All I know is that each of these metal, metallic carcasses means one less car on the road and one more rider on the bus of shame. Shame because LA is about space. And here one's self-worth comes from how one chooses to navigate that space. Walking is akin to begging it in the streets. Taxi cabs are for foreigners and prostitutes. Bicycles, skateboards, and rollerblades are for health nuts and kids, people with nowhere to go. And all cars, from the luxury import to the classified ad jalopy, are status symbols. Because no matter how shoddy the upholstery, how bouncy the ride, and how fucked up the paint job, the car, any car, is better than riding the bus. Alameda, Marpessa shouted, and a woman scurried aboard, toting one too many plastic shopping bags and pinning her purse tightly to her side with her elbow. She made her way down the aisle, scanning for vacancies. I can spot an L.A. newcomer a mile away. They're the ones who board the bus smiling and greeting the other passengers because they believe, despite all evidence to the contrary, that having to take mass transportation is only a temporary setback. They're the ones sitting under the safe sex ads, looking up quizzically from their Brett Easton Ellis novels, trying to figure out why the assholes surrounding them aren't all white and opulent like the assholes in the book. They're the ones who jump up and down like game show prize winners when they discover that In-N-Out Burger has both a secret menu and a double top secret menu. 
They sign up for open mics at the Laugh Factory, jog along the boardwalk trying to convince themselves that the double penetration scene they shot in Reseda last week is only a stepping stone to bigger and better things. Many parents brag about their kids' first words. Mommy, Daddy, I love you. Stop. No, that's inappropriate. Actually, I'm going to skip this part, sorry. <laughs> uh, it's just some stuff about like where she's going to sit. I could tell from the way they pulled her arms into the ground that the bags were getting heavy, that she was barely holding on to her groceries and dreams. Even though she was exhausted and growing more and more despondent with each bumpy rise and fall of the worn-out suspension, she preferred to stand rather than to sit next to me. They come to L.A. aspiring to be white. Even the ones who are biologically white aren't white white. Laguna Beach volleyball white, Bel Air white, Omakase white, Spicoli white, Brett Easton Ellis white, three first names white, valet parking white, brag about your Native American, Argentinian, Portuguese ancestry white, paparazzi white, I once got fired from a telemarketing job, now look at me, I'm famous white, <laughs> Calabasas white. I love L.A. It's the only place where you can go skiing to the beach and to the desert all in one day, white. She held on to her vision rather than sit next to me. Not that I blamed her. Because by the time the bus hit Figueroa Boulevard, there were a number of people on board whom I wouldn't have chosen to sit next to either. Like the insane fucker who repeatedly pressed the stop requested button. Stop this bus, goddammit. I want to get off. Where the fuck you going? Even that early in the day, stopping a bus between designated stops was the same as asking the flight crew of the Apollo rocket to the moon to stop at the liquor store on the way. Impossible. Thanks. Thank you very much. Okay. So, um, in reading your novels, and I'll admit that I've read three of the four of them, um, I feel like you're, you know, a lot of people say your writing's really dense. Um, there are layers of meaning, there are references. Um, sometimes I feel I have to be American or Californian or have lived in Berlin to get them. Where did you get the confidence to trust in the reader that they would follow you? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of the confidence comes just from having read, you know? I mean, I read so many books, none of them have anything to do with me, you know? <laughs> Perfectly fine. And um, I think that's where it starts in a weird way, you know? And I kind of enjoy things that have nothing to do with me, I think. Um, I'm, yeah. But um, it, that's what you're asking, I think, is something I struggled with, you know, in a weird way. Uh, I think you're taught to read for that thing, you know, for read to be understood in certain ways. And uh, the story I've been telling, I guess, because it's not where I got the confidence, but it's where I've kind of just figured out to trust myself, is I used to write poetry. And I, you know, after a year, I finally wrote a good poem at the end of the first year. I was going to MFA school in Brooklyn. I wrote a good poem. Or at least that's something I thought was good. You have to read the poem, and they workshop the poem, and blah, blah, blah. And there was this kid in the poem whose name, I wish I could remember his name, but he hated the poem. He just was like, I don't understand. I have no idea what's going on. These words mean nothing to me. This is just gibberish on the page. And it just went on and on. I was like, fuck. And then at the same, at the end of that year, uh, that professor, you know, we had a little meeting at the end of the year and she told me I should quit writing. Hush. Yeah, no, she said, I think you should think about doing something else. Those were exact words. I got a C plus. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so, but thankfully I had a person that I met with every week. You know, we'd go over my work and he would talk to me. This guy named Lou Asikoff, who I'm still very close to this day. And, you know, so I told him what this other professor had said. And he was like, yeah, you know, you're actually trying to do something that no one else has really tried to do before, you know? And he said something to me that was so helpful. Is he said, people are going to learn to read you. And it was, one, he was saying, you know, you're writing something that's worth reading, worth thinking about, worth doing this. He didn't say that explicitly, but it totally helped me out when you said that. I was like, oh, I didn't know that happened. You know, I thought everybody had to like it immediately or something. You know, I just, I didn't know. And so at the end of, the summer went by, and then that next year I had Allen Ginsberg for a teacher. And he said, bring in your best poem. And I stopped from the top. So that poem was my best poem. Same class, so same students, different professor. 
I read the poem and the same guy who couldn't stand the poem was like, I didn't have to say anything about the poem. He was like, oh, Paul's talking about this. Paul's doing this. Paul's doing that. This is so fucking smart. Paul's doing this. All this kind of stuff. And at the end of the class, I went, dude, you hated that poem. And he What's was changed? like, yeah, that's exactly what I asked him. And uh, he said, yeah, I was in New York for three months. You know what I mean? So his, his, his ears, something happened. You know, and so for me, it wasn't like, yeah, whatever I do, people are going to figure it out. It wasn't that, but it was just that a recognition that so much things, you know, there's a lot of movement, you know, in terms of what you read. Just even with me, I started thinking about things that I read that I don't like, things that I read and hated and suddenly like, you know, there's, there's just so much movement. And so that was like a, an early thing in just me really starting to trust myself. And uh, my sister is a playwright. And one day we were just talking and she, you know, most of the time people go, oh, people are so fucking stupid. But she said to me, you know, people are actually really smart. And, you know, I spent a ton of times, years reading all these oral histories and I love Studs Terkel. And I'd read these books and these people are so fucking smart. They're so insightful. You know, they just need to be asked that right question. And they, you just like teaching, you know, you start talking about stuff and you go, oh, I didn't even know I knew that, yeah. you know? And so... There's somewhere in there is about the confidence and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've been writing for a long time, so I've learned to halfway trust myself as a writer and, and also to trust, you know, the people that are here, you know, the people that are hopefully going to pick up the book. Yeah. That was a completely selfish question, really, for me, but thank you. Why was it selfish on your part? Uh, selfish because as a writer, you feel that... You, you're, quite, you're not quite sure of how your writing is going to connect, who your audience is, um, and why they will be receptive to your work. And um, sometimes there's a voice in there telling you to kind of go somewhere that feels raw or feels um, like revealing. I sometimes often shy away from that, listening to that voice, and yeah. it felt like in reading your work that you hadn't done so and so hence it being a no, I, mean, I think you know I think I think a lot of people are taught to do that yeah you know for whatever reasons you're taught to be appropriate you're taught to be not this and that you're taught to pay homage to these and that things talk about these things in a certain way and I think people feel that pressure and I think when I started writing I kind of went into it going yeah I'm not doing that you know, when I learn, you know, from my friends and these other discussions, we're not doing that. You know, we're being really honest with each other. We're being funny, you know, because we trust each other at yeah. some level. So it's like that's where I was trying to start at or trying to figure out how to get to, you know, that weird kind of point place. So that that first question is linked to my second question. So when I was reading um, all of the novels, really, I was thinking about I, the first novel that I read was The Sellout. And it made me think of this essay that I'd read by the wonderful June Jordan. I don't know if people here know her, but she was a poet and an essayist. And she wrote this essay about um, teaching her students, her uni students, about black English, um, teaching them that it was worthy of study and what was being lost, what was being missed in them not recognizing it in its own right. Um, and it felt to me that... Um, you were you were doing that work that she was kind of talking about, reclaiming that language, um, and saying it is it can be literary. It made me smile mm. because it felt like it seemed in her essay it seemed like like something that was an impossibility, but here we were. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the book is black English. You know, no, 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 no. I mean, no, like, no, I mean, no, I know what you mean. Certain... Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And it's to me, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't even really know how to talk about that. But that's one of the many Englishes that are familiar to me yeah. or that I want to explore that, you know. And so for me, I just have a layer of different types of English and a layer of other languages. You know, in this book, there's Latin in there, there's yeah. Spanish and there's all kind of stuff. So. For me, it's just all the same thread somehow. It's like, how am I going to divide that up? What color is this section going to be? You know, it's like, I'm just kind of knitting something a little bit, you know. Uh, I remember early on, like in my poetry career, I guess I had a career, I don't know what to call it. But uh, I was in a panel, and we were, it was like a translation panel. Mm -hmm. and I know nothing about translation. I can't speak any language. I can't do anything. But 
And then a guy said to me, he was talking about my work, and he was like, oh, you know, we're here talking about translation. He says, the thing about your work is you're doing an English-to-English translation. And when he said that, it sounds like nonsense, but it made perfect sense to me because I know what he was saying. You know, I'm taking all these things that are sort of familiar to people and trying to make it sound new, sound fresh. And hopefully it's like, it's my language. I mean, that's the stuff that's really important to me is the language and the words and stuff like that. Um, so one of the things I really enjoyed about all three books is that um, you're kind of challenging the accepted tropes about black masculinity. And one of the ways in which you do that is through the female love interest, shall I say, if it feels like. You can tell me I'm wrong. No, no, um, no. Of these central characters. And they are often actually difficult women. <laughs> um, a lot of these male characters are in some ways frigid, should I say? Is that, the, is that fair? So, you know, me says he's frigid. Um, Gunnar is, you know, kind of forced into um, marriage with a male order bride. And then you've got, like, the character of Claudia in Slumberland that I really, really liked. Um, why was it important to you to have these female figures? Yeah. <laughs> um... It's not like it's so important to have the female figures in a weird way. It's just, it's hard, it's hard to talk about. Um, such a good question, sorry. Part of it is, I think you used, you talked about like turning the black male trope yeah. on its head a little bit. And so much of that just comes from people always questioning my masculinity <laughs> for whatever reasons, you know, women doing it, men doing it, yeah. you know, dogs doing it, whatever, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it happens all the time, you know. So that's where I kind of start, you know, from it's that it's kind of making fun of my own sense of masculinity first. And I think the other stuff just comes like as a natural expression of that. And so like in, you're talking about Gunnar Kaufman and, yeah. and White Boy Shuffle. And uh, there's these two characters in that book, Betty and Veronica. I don't know if you remember them. Him being bitch dipped. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, I, oh, God, this is stuff I haven't forgotten about. I forgot, like, yeah. But, like, I think they have this conversation about how there's no word for men losing their virginity or something. Like, there's no male equivalent of the flower. But, again, it starts from the language. Why does this exist here and doesn't exist in this context, you know? That's where it starts from. And so he's asking these questions, and they answer in the ways that they answer. But it's, yeah, you know, I try to find, like, symbolism and things that talk about these things without being didactic, without being pedantic about it. So, like, with Betty and Veronica, you know, their sisterhood for me is expressed because they have a geodesic dome. Like, they're wearing the same hairstyle, you know, but it's connected, you know, so they have this geodesic dome over both their heads, which I loved. Because it's funny about black hair, it's funny yeah. about style, all this kind of stuff. But then there's a, you know, there's something there. And, you know, and then they torment him. I was really nervous about, and Betty and Veronica, you guys, do they have Archie here? Archie Comics? So, okay, so I don't have to say anything. So, and it's also that, you know, I named them Betty and Veronica for personal reasons, but for more social context <laughs> reasons. And, and, and even with this last book, before I started writing it, my wife, Althea, was talking to me about, you know, female characters. And she said, yeah, make sure your female characters have fun. And I remember her saying that, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, fun. Because fun means so much. You know, it's such a good word. And it's like a thing that we don't think about. It's like, you know, like this all this cultural appropriation. That's because the way, I mean, characters, it's a, the, the people are called characters for us for a reason, you know. They're not um, androids or something, you know, it's a character. <laughs> but I think part of it is we, we see characters so in a limited construct. You know, and uh, this doesn't have anything to do with gender necessarily, but I was talking to my students about like some of the same stuff. And in my head, I was like, hey, what are the, what's the most racist thing I've ever read? You know, and it was in this play and there's a white guy, some play about a white guy. I don't barely remember. I just remember this scene. He goes into an ice cream parlor or something and there's this black kid in the ice cream parlor. It's a play from the 70s, I think. And in the play, in the notes or whatever. It says something about the black kid, and I think that comes up in the dialogue, that the black kid's 
IQ is 175. And I went, yeah, that's the most fucking racist thing I've ever said, ever read. You know what I mean? Because it's so forced. Yeah. And it's so trying so hard. And you know that he actually believes the opposite, at least in my reading of it. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's these kind of weird things that for me are interesting and things to play around with and stuff like that. So I want to talk a bit about race. <laughs> um, so you said that the sellout, that, so for those of you who haven't read the sellout, um, the central character, me, reinstitutes segregation, although segregation already, his, his town's already segregated. But you said that it's not a bleak novel i heard said I, this really yeah <sighs> it, it was an i wrote I, I wrote where you said it set it down as well because i wondered that that might happen um, <laughs> <laughs> um it was in a hard talk interview so, and you said so you said it was wasn't a bleak novel and i i was a bit kind of like taken aback by that because to me it seems like really ambivalent with the kind of state of where we're at in terms of race and so, um, you, you equate ambivalence with bleakness, or um, yes, in that it's kind of like we're nowhere. <laughs> I wanted to kind of ask because the the book is about a character taking us back. Um, how do you think we measure progress when we, we're talking about race? Yeah, I have no idea. Okay, swiftly no. moving I mean, on. That's what the book is about in some ways. Is about like this thing. And so for me, it's so interesting about some people, oh, it's bleak. Other people, oh, it's actually very optimistic in a weird way. It's so interesting to me, the different readings. That's because I'm ambivalent about everything. So when you're ambivalent, people project their own stuff on about what they want. You know, it's their baggage meets my baggage, you know. So, um, you know, and the progress thing is for me interesting because in the book, there's a there's a sense of, you know, there's a subtext of psychological progress like this. How do we get to self-actualization as people, as, you know, whatever cohorts you want to put under there? There's that, mm-hmm. you know, and I just don't really think about that stuff. You know, okay. it's to me, it's it's always fucked up. You know, it's fucked up now. It's going to be fucked up tomorrow. It's going to, you know, it's just, uh, it's just how bleak. It, but no, not necessarily, <laughs> because within that are people who know it's fucked up and don't give up. You know, yeah. they just keep doing, you know, they just, they fight, they do, they don't fight, you know, they create, they do this, you know, people do what they do. That's not necessarily bleak to me, you know, and I think people talk about this. This hit me because I, I early on I would get these questions. Uh, do you ever see an end to racial blah, 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 like, like some utopia? Wow. And I'm like, well, what does that look like for you? Because yeah. that's going to look like completely different for someone else, mm-hmm. you know, but there's this, we use these words, we talk about this thing, like there's this ideal stuff you know the voltaire talked about this it's the same stuff you know and um so that's the interesting stuff to me is about how it's the same but different or different but the same that's 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 always really interesting to me so it can be bleak it can be but i think part of that is it's like the book sometimes it's funny sometimes it's not you know i read a passage sometimes everybody's rolling in the aisles i read the same thing people are listening no less engaged but they're like oh, shit, this is so sad. You know what I mean? So it depends. My mood, a, a lot of stuff. And so my wife wears this jacket that says Rorschach on it all the time. And that's, like, really important to me about, like, when you see images and what you project on that. Yeah. You know, and that changes from day to day, person to person sometimes. So I, I see what you're saying. Like, you know, and then me, it's, I did this interview, I think it was in Italy, and a guy put up, I can't remember what they were, but he put two quotes right in front of me. And they're completely contradictory, like completely. And I think I said them back to back. Like I said one thing, but that's like how I think, that's how I feel, that's how we communicate. You know, and it's hard for us to handle sometimes hypocrisy and contradiction. But for me, that stuff is so fun. It's so real. And it makes life difficult sometimes. But it's, for me, not more honest, but it's, it's, it's just part of the fabric, you know, it's just part of the fact we act like if something's contradictory, then it cancels something out. That's not the case all the time, you know? Yeah, I think in a way, in we know that people are contradictory. I guess what my question was kind of trying to articulate was the fact that I felt like there was a lot of contradictions in here. And, and 
I wasn't expecting that because I guess the literature that I choose to go to, um, I'm not going to to kind of be thrown into like just how contradictory life yeah. is. So it felt like an, an exercise in like really thinking about these issues and yeah, thinking about where I'm placed and yeah, where I'm being contradictory. I think when I first started writing, like I was talking about trying to fill this thing and contradiction was a part of that. You know, it's like everything is so self-assured and yeah. so false and nothing is like that, at least for me yeah. and how I experience the world or how I experience argument, anything. And I was like, yeah, that's not that that's easy necessarily because I think there's a reason for that. But for me, it's that's not very interesting, you know? Yeah. And so that's not something that I've ever tried to do. It doesn't really interest me really. So part of this like theme of like me seeing the bleak is that I felt like in... All of the three novels that I read, there was a character who is minor but kind of also significant, who decides to choose self-immolation in mm. whatever sort of way. Mm. Because of the weight of racism, they just opt out. And so I wanted to ask about why this kind of theme of Suiciders protest keeps cropping up <laughs> in your work. Yeah, that's like everybody, people say satire, they never ask that question. They just say satire, they don't talk about that. So it's going to get bleaker. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> sorry. But, uh, <laughs> but no, it's a really good question. And it's um, something I think about a lot. I think it was in London, actually. Some, some Goldsmith University, Gold something. Yeah, that's yeah, it. I was, I was there. A woman asked and stood up a question and she talked about collective trauma, yeah. you know, collective depression, collective psychoses, you know, these things that we don't talk about. And that's part of it. You know, I have a background in psychology or things I think about. And then a lot of it's just personal, you know, from um, friends that have committed suicide, uh, just, you know, watching things. Um, and this, this notion of way outs, what's utopia, like, you know, all these doors that never seem to really open. And um, so it's just, I, I don't want to say too much, but it's yeah. something that I think about. And most of the suicide stuff in the book is really based on something that I know. So there's this very minor thing where the guy, I think it's Hom, and he writes this note, like, I'm, at, I'm in the back. And that's like based on, God, I've never talked about this before. There was a guy who I didn't know, my sister knew him. A guy who ran a little art scene in L.A. in the Crenshaw District. And he had committed suicide. He just left a note. I'm in the back. And he was hanging in the back. You know? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's something I take very seriously, even though I'm, you know, talking about it in ways that are, can easily be construed as comedic and bleak at the same time, I think. But it's something I think about. Yeah. I'm not really answering your question. No, but. no, no, no. You, you are. You are. Yeah, it, it's hard not to... To talk about it and not give too much away because I want you to go and yeah. read the, these novels. But even with the suicide thing, I mean, you know, I get obsessed with tons of stuff. <laughs> I still am. I was obsessed with the notion of kamikaze pilots. Like, what makes you do that? Yeah. What's the societal stuff behind that? And I'd read all these oral histories, kamikaze pilots, these letters that they would write, the poems that they would write. Because you're, you're just facing something. You've made these weird decisions, or these decisions have sort of been made for you. Mm. And, uh, and just, you know, that notion of who commits suicide and why. When, you know, it's funny. This has nothing to do with anything. I just feel the need to say it. But I remember watching a documentary, and it was about kamikaze pilots. And this woman who made the documentary asked men who had fought in the U.S. Navy and who had been, you know, attacked by kamikaze missions or whatever on ships about the notion are they crazy this and that and one guy went yeah you know i think if we were losing the war i think they would find americans who would be willing to do the same thing you know because it's always oh this is a japanese thing they yeah, were taught yeah, yeah. this da, da, da. and he said that i was like oh man i'm glad that he's whether he's right or wrong you know i have my own opinion but he's thinking about just being in the other shoe shoe on the other foot which is something we don't really do very often it's really uncomfortable to go, yeah, you know what? Under similar circumstances, I might act the same way, you know, because that challenges something. And, uh, anyway, sorry. No, no, no. I, 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 like, I liked it morbidly um, because <laughs> it kind of, 
it was an embodiment, it seemed to be an embodiment of the mental health issues that black people carry um, wherever they are, you know, placed in the diaspora. Um, and it just seemed like a way of you kind of um, characterizing that. Um, so I, I liked it, which is why. <laughs> No, but just like the fact that you like the morbidity of it in a weird way. It's not like you like it or you, oh, cool, people are committing suicide. It's not that, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, a... I like that there were characters that were saying, fuck it, fuck, fuck you, fuck this system, fuck it, I'm out. I like that there was at least one character doing that. Mm. Um, it seemed right. Trying to like be a bit more light. <laughs> <laughs> There's obviously, obviously people talk about the humour. Um, how vicious it is, and I think they kind of mean like how how dark it is, how it sits next to darkness. But one of the ways in which you... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, darkly humorous is with these characters that are sellouts to blackness so you've got Hominy, you've got um swen kaufman who like he's a character who um in the white boy shuffle who runs back into slavery because he wants to like put on a really amazing ballet he likes the movement of like the slaves on the plantation which was funny but also like ah like, um why are you why are you attracted to these figures these sellouts to blackness i'm damaged you know it's pretty simple <laughs> deeply wrong with you yeah absolutely uh yeah i don't know it's part of it is just like trying to extrapolate on stuff you know so I don't know, this pops in my head. So, you know, and about my own notions of self-worth, my own notions of progressiveness, of activism, of all this kind of stuff. And so it's one of those things, I, you know, when I grew up, everybody's parent was in the Black Panthers. Ah, I'm in the Black Panthers. I was in the Black Panthers. My mom was in the Black Panthers. All my Japanese friends, they were all samurai. You know what I mean? It's like this, this, this interesting thing, you know? And I was like, well, this can't always be true. Mm -hmm. And so, like, in that same passage that you were talking about, I remember thinking about, because I'm painting, he's got a legacy of relatives that, I don't think I use the word sellout, but they're no, all, but they're, like, historical fuck-ups. Yeah, they're all way. dodgy. So, yeah, they're dodgy. And I think, like, the dodginess gets overlooked, you know, in terms of even how we talk about historical figures. So I remember, not the recent Manny Marable book on Malcolm X, there was another book okay. before that, I don't know, 15 years before that that said a bunch of the same things that Mirable said. And that book got trashed, you know, because he was saying, oh, Malcolm X had the gay experience. Malcolm X lied about this. Malcolm X did all this kind of stuff. And so everybody was like, you can't say this about Malcolm X. I think Bell Hooks said that about Mirable as well. Oh, really? And I'm like, no, that makes me like Malcolm X even more, yeah. you know, because he's fucking real. You know, look at all the shit that he's dealing with. It just, man, I'm just like, dude, you're... I really see you now. You know mm. what I mean? Like, the faults, all the, yeah. the foibles... And some of those are for beautiful reasons. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's just, uh, again, some of it's this masculinity stuff. There's so much stuff that people just aren't comfortable with attaching to their heroes and their idols and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think like that necessarily, you know. Um, so I don't know. That's a part of it I, somehow, you know. So there's a, there's a moment in the sellout where towards the end, 
where um, there's a comedy club in this um, now segregated city or town. There's a black comic and he's doing a set and it's to a room full of uh, black people but there's a couple in there that are white and he and they're laughing along and he turns to them and he says something like this shit's not for you or something you know and they keep laughing and he's like no really it's not for you and so when I first read it I initially thought oh that's that's a kind of like allegory for the book like actually I'm I'm like the true like intended audience (laughs) (laughs) it's for me um because like uh, you know a lot of white friends had read it and loved it and found it funny and I was a bit like but I'm not sure and that but then I kind of killing my sales right now (laughs) (laughs) I'm just being real Um, but then but then but then me says something like I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it is something like, you know, I wondered who his real audience was. Mm. That made me think, okay, it's not what I thought. Like, the sellout is not just for, for me and people <laughs> like me. It seems that, like, in this, everyone, there's a shot aimed at every type of kind of uh, person who talks about race or who does race work. Why was it important for you to do that? Uh, it's just because I'm an asshole, basically. It's pretty simple. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty simple. <laughs> it's I, I don't like being lectured to, you know, or being told how to be and told that I can't make any mistakes. I understand that, you know, the pressure or playing fields aren't level. I get the I get the need to be protective. I, I understand it, but I don't like it, you know. And I think it starts with my mom never protected me and my sisters at all, you know, to our detriment a little bit, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, we, we were never, everything was open. You know, she never told us how to be at all. You know, she let us figure it out. You know, she had a, we didn't have a television. We just had her library, which was pretty goddamn good. And we just read and she never said we couldn't go. I mean, I've been seeing our movies since ever, you know, forever. And she would drag us to this Japanese theater. You know, I've been watching Ozu and Kurosawa movies since forever, you know, so she just never went like, this is for you. This is, this is just, everything is for you. You know, that's because that's how she is. And like, so the, it's interesting because that incident, in, incident, this passage in the book is based on something my sister told me. She went to a comedy club. There was this, was a con- I can't believe I'm talking about this. I'm giving away all the shit that I don't like talking about. That's <laughs> your crud. Uh, um... There's a comedian, no one's going to know, a guy named Robin Harris. And he had a little moment, like a little thing. But my sister, in L.A., he had like this real strong comedy scene going. Like everyone was going, mostly black audiences. This, my sister went, this is late 80s maybe? I'm not sure when this was. And it was a black club, black neighborhood, all this kind of stuff. And there were two white people sitting in the front. And like what happened in the book happened. He was wow. like, yeah, get the fuck out. And everybody started cracking up. You know, this is like when people were wearing Malcolm X on their hats in the States and Spike Lee is the end all be all, you know, all this kind of crap. Anyways, and uh, it's just the Spike Lee part. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and he was like, get the fuck out. And they're, oh, oh, oh. like, no, I'm dead serious. Get the fuck out. Oh, oh, oh. You know, and they, they, the people, you know, he told them, like, this isn't for you, you know. And so they ended up leaving. And it's like that weird kind of, false sense of power like this real momentary thing look how important we are look you know we're in this you know this there's some truth to that whatever truth is there's, there's i can see the need for all that and all that and I'm not, but for me i'm like yeah really you know I, I don't know what that means necessarily so for me it was like you know and the character says because he my sister said he went like this isn't for you and that that phrase makes no sense to me you know, that makes no sense. I get to decide what's for me and not. Oh. You no know, one else gets to decide, you know. And uh, it's not that easy. I can talk about that, like, individually. But that was just the thing. And, and it's, like, a key. Like, I mean, you picked it up right, right away. It's a key to how you think you're reading the book, how you want to read the book, you know, this whole thing. And, and I think I'm making a broad, vastly untrue statement that sort of feels true to me. Which is this idea, like, and this comes from a review that my wife read to me the other day about another book. And 
but this idea that audiences want what they get, you know, they want what they expect, you know, American movies, snakes on a plane. I want snakes on a plane, goddammit. Give me snakes yeah. on a plane, you know what I mean? And then so, like, I, I was so pleased to hear you talk about, oh, it's not what I expected. You know, this is what I, I love that. You know, I love sitting in the movie theater and going, whoa, I didn't know you could do that. You know, I love that feeling of just learning something and all that kind of stuff. And so I try to sort of duplicate that a little bit, you know? So um, I read a bit of the first chapter of, like, your collection of essays on African-American humor. And you were kind of saying... So why don't they? Why why don't we have stuff that's funny oh. in in literature? Why is it so heavy? Why is it so dry? So why is humor like having humor so important to to you? It's it's not so much the humor. I mean, it is partly that. Like, I don't write, sit down, and go, "I'm going to write a funny book." I don't do that. But I know, or I've learned. I just I never thought about it until somebody pointed out to me. It's like, oh, why is everything you write so funny? Like, I just thought there were things in there that were occasionally funny or something. But no, you've got jokes, tons of them. Yeah, that just I, go I just off never thought about it. I was just this is just how I write, you know, and uh, yeah, because I don't want to be the oh time for a joke. Jokes go here. Jokes come in threes. The rule of threes. I don't want to do any of that, you know. So, and I don't consider myself like a joke writer or something. I don't know. It might be fun, but just how I see the world, you know. And again, like sometimes the funny shit is not that fucking funny. You know, and some of the serious shit is much funnier than you you might want to think. So, I mean, humor is a part of that somehow. Um, and I think a lot of it is, you know, I was talking about this today earlier, is like from Richard Pryor. You know, I don't know if people know who Richard Pryor is, but he, he I mean, he spoke to so many people, you know. And I think about like when I first discovered him, me and my friends listened to those albums and going to college and me and my college friends who weren't anything like me at some level love and just he just spoke and it's just because and it's the thing like I guess I should have been saying this earlier but people go well how come people in India like your book how come people in Australia like your book as if they wouldn't for some reason I don't know but I think it's part so simple it's like why people like anything it's the vulnerability you know I think people feel that you know and I think you, you don't get it very much sometimes, like just true, you know, I'm going to really kind of demean myself in a weird way, you know, and that's where I try to start from is like, I'm trying to satirize, not that word, but I'm trying to really make fun of myself, things that I care about. You know, I'm really trying to question myself almost at all times throughout the book, you know, and I think, you know, it's that that's why you share. I remember reading Austerlitz by Siebel and. It's like, man, he's just letting it fucking go. You know, it's like there's one of those books where I just learned. He's just, he doesn't care what I think. You know, he's just structure, language, all that. He's just letting it go, you know. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, Lola, thank you. (laughs) Um, Now questions from you wonderful people. Um, What did you learn from Ellen Ginsberg? You know what I learned from Alan? Uh, I learned precision from Alan. You know, somebody would write something and he would talk, he would say, you know what, I can't see this image. And it sort of sounds good, but it doesn't really mean anything. And so I just learned, I don't agree with it all the time, but I think precision is really, really important. And you know, but I get to kind of define what precision means for me. But that, that notion of seeing it, and, you know, not just about the sound, but all that thing. That that really stuck with me. And Alan was a really generous guy, you know, if he liked to, I guess, you know, he's a pain in the ass, too, but for any other reasons. But um, that was one of the things. And, you know, Alan was as full of shit as anybody else that I've ever met, you know, but he was very, he spread that shit around evenly. <laughs> you know what I mean? He was Good like, guy. yeah, no, I appreciated that. And, um. And he loved what he did. I mean, he loved what he did. And right before he died, he did this thing in the village. I can't remember where the spot. But he read every single poem that he'd ever written. Like over this, like, I don't know, it must have been at least two weeks. Wow. It had a night at the spot. You just show up. And all these people. I mean, I, he had his own universe, you know, that, of people that were around him. It was interesting, you know. And, 
but it was about the power of poetry and just that the passion with what he was doing. And there was a time where no one could touch Allen in terms of the stuff that he was writing, you know, and way ahead of his time, way ahead of his time. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying not to end up in some club reading every poem I wrote <laughs> before I die. No, I'm trying. It was beautiful for him, but I just want to go. <laughs> yeah, I'll self-emulate before I, before I do that. <laughs> no, but I don't. I mean, I love poetry. I read it, you know, but I just, I just don't write it. What turned you away from him? Uh, yeah, you got to be a poet. You know, it's... Um, I think part of it is everyone thought I was a performance poet. You know, I just couldn't show up. I just read and sat down. But, you know, no one would just say... They didn't want much from you. Yeah, no. I mean, but people wanted something. And, you know, histrionics and all this other crap. And I was just... So part of it was that. And part of it was... This is going to sound... I guess it is self-centered somehow. But people wanted to attach their wagon to me. And so I was the hip hop guy. I was this like, and it was it was just too much, and it was too much. And and the other thing is like, you have to read so much when you do poetry. I don't, don't particularly like reading very much, and I didn't read a lot. But I realized I was writing a poem, and I wrote a line, and in my head I went, "Oh, they're gonna like that," and it just really raised the flag. I was like, "Oh, that's not why I write. You know, that's not." But I was really conscious of audience yeah. at some point, yeah. and. And I was moving away, but that was like a real thing. Like, yeah, this is not what I want to be doing, you know. Uh, that might change now. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that was part of, part of the reason for moving away from it. I haven't got so much as a question, more of a thank you. I've read loads and loads of books in my life, and I've never really understood satire or irony before. And I realise that's partly because I've only ever really read white writer irony from situations that I couldn't identify with. So I found your book, The Sellout, hilarious as well as upsetting. And I just wanted to thank you because it did, it changed my appreciation of literature. No, thank you so much. Thanks. It's, uh, where was I? Hackney. And um, just the other day. And so like the satire word, I'm not very comfortable. I'm completely fine with the irony word. I love that word. And it was the, this notion, you know, I was, because I, I realized, like for me, in my definition of satire, like satire is very pointed, you know, this is a satire of Hollywood. You know, Preston Surge is a satire of Hollywood. Uh, this is a satire of Mark Twain. I don't know, relations in the South or something. And I think I realized that one is if I was to ask people in this book, what is, what's this book satirizing? Everybody would have a different answer. I think a lot of people would have different answers. You know, I hear black intellectuals. I hear white liberals. And none of it makes sense to me. Black intellectuals make sense to me. But, you know, but uh, people have different answers. And then one woman said, which is, every comes up now and then, she said, uh, she's from Uganda, and she said, yeah, this book isn't satire, because it's totally true. You know what I mean? And it's like that thing. So it's interesting about who it's satire for, who is it, who is, who's it not satire for, because I don't think of it as satire, just hopefully think of it as a good, you know, kind of funny book. But uh, yeah, I don't know. But when she said that, that really helped me somehow in terms of how I, I can explain this stuff. You've already talked about how there are so many amazing references everywhere throughout uh, the novels and it's so dense um i just had a question about your process do you sort of think about them before ahead of time and kind of use them as pinpoints or waypoints and go back to them or do you just write going forwards and they come to you what's what's them um like so many different references to Uh, different things (laughs) it's just how i how i think you know how i write uh some of it's to there's certain shortcuts, you know what I mean? It's, some of it is, I'm going to draw a line here. Are you going to cross this, you know? I, I don't know. It's just, I mean, there's so much happening in my head at once, you know, so much happening in, on the page at once, so much happening in my life at once. And, you know, in psych, we have this phrase, the here and now. And it's, I realize, it's like how I tell stories. I talk about, like, what happened two days ago, or Althea was here. And it's, you know, there's just so much happening in a space. And... So the references help me traverse the space a little bit. They're not meant to necessarily shut people out. I know that it can have that effect. And, and part of it is, you know, when do I choose to explain something when, do I, when I yeah. don't? And so this is the story I've been just telling like the past week and a half or so because it's just sort of like decision making in a weird way. 
So I think when I wrote this book, like I kind of went in going, yeah, I'm not going to, whatever it is I'm writing about, I'm not starting at this spot where everybody always fucking starts. There was a slave, he was kidnapped, you know, all this kind of crap, or I we had, was drunk, my dad beat me, you know, I don't know, whatever. There's some starting point that so many, um, that American literature just always has to start at in terms of, you know, any, everything's a dialogue at some level. And so I just was like, I was like, I'm not doing that, you know? And it, I think I've done this for a long time in a weird way. And it comes from a guy who I kind of name drop in the book. That it's a reference that no one's going to know because it's personal to me. You know, it, it can feel fictional, but as long as no one cares, you know, it doesn't matter. And a guy named Bob Chin, he was like my first mentor. And we used to meet at his house when I was in grad school. I was getting my doctorate and it's like, he have, we'd have these great conversations, very intense. You know, they would get heavy and people would get angry and loose. And then, like, you've all heard, somebody goes, wait, wait, we're all human beings, aren't we, you know? And I remember Bob turning to the woman who said it and goes, why do you feel the need to say that? That's obvious. The fact that you feel the need to say that says something about, you kind of don't believe it. You need that reminder or something. And he was like, it's a given. Let's just have the conversation without having to go back and go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're not a monkey. Oh, yeah, you know what I mean? And it's, and I was like, whoa, that was really deep for me. Because he was like, that's where the conversation should be. We don't have to go back to these things that always take us back somehow. Mm. And it's like a concept that I mock in, in White Boy Shuffle, like that need to always, you know, yes, we're all, you know, cause it's a way of something. I don't know. It's a way of a lot of things deflecting, really. So I don't know. So it's, I have to figure out where to start, what to explain. Like even the little rascals in the book. You know, I was like, fuck, no one knows who the little rascals are, right? You know? I did have to Google. <laughs> yeah, but... You can Google, or hopefully the book is good enough or tight enough that at some point you don't give a fuck, you get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so some of that just comes from passion, from hard work mostly, you know? So, but it's about writing about things that are important to me at some level. You know, not like earth changing. It's just shit I want to talk about, you know? And, uh, and I think that hopefully that, I'm using the word passion a lot. That's not the word I want to use, but hopefully that's what kind of crosses. That's what gets in. And I remember like, you know, like every now and then you hear, don't use these pop culture references, don't do that. But part of that is a definition of what's pop culture to whom, when. And I remember reading Dante's Inferno and going, oh, this book is just jam-packed. It's all pop culture to then, you know, these popes, these vicars, all these politicians that he fucking hates. I have no clue who these people are, you know, but it's, it's that energy. It's that bigger point that he's trying to make. It's not actually not that important. It's just a name. So I just, I use the stuff that's important to me. And then those things, those things strike chords with certain people. Some people it doesn't strike a chord with, some people it does. So I realized, I didn't realize this. I, people have to tell me stuff before I realize it. And a woman came up to me, Samantha, as a, when I was still writing poetry, and she was like, it must suck to be you. And I was like, well, why? <laughs> I'm all right. You know, she was, because she, she said, everybody only gets 50% of what you're trying to do. And I was like, yeah, that's all right. I'm good with that. You know what I mean? And that 50% is going to be different for everybody. And, you know, and it's, it's all layering. And then in the next day, two weeks, it's like that guy, you know, summer goes by and your ears open and something, hopefully, you know, so sorry. God, I'm talking a lot. Sorry. That's good. That's why they're here. Two health questions. One is about the process, which is you're kind of performing tonight and you've talked about performing as a poet. And I wonder whether you really, really like it when you go back into the room where you are solitary and where the writer is generally more introverted and whether that's a side of your life that you really uh, like. And then I have another question. Yeah, uh, the first one is that's who I am, you know. I think I was when I was here last, the woman came up to me and she was like, you're much less shy than you were 20 years ago when you just said three words and looked down the entire time. But it's because I've been teaching, you know, and the teaching has gotten me too much so. But I'm used to hearing my voice a little bit. and I'm used to trying to explain some shit and, you know, get some points across. So the teaching is is why, really. And then, you know, I just teach. I just teach. I try, you know. I'm a very solitary person. Yeah, just I am by nature. And so, yeah. When you're in that solitary place... And you've done your drafting to a certain point. It's starting to sound like Get Out or something. I can't remember what that place is called. Yeah. What was it called? 
No, I just want to ask about <laughs> cutting people's, no, you please. know, the number of words that that rich rush of words and images and ideas. Can you remember how much cutting you did along the way? I'm writing. I mean, it took me five years to write this book. You know, it took a long time. So, yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's hard, hard fucking work. And I think, uh, it's one of the things that I get. I remember Alan saying this and I got pissed at him. He was talking about Ornette Coleman. Oh, it's so natural. It comes from the soul. I was like, motherfucker, you know how much practice, you know? It's just like, so I, 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 I bristle sometimes yeah. when I hear that. I mean, it's just fucking hard goddamn work, at least for me. And I think for most people. But I work at my pace. Everyone's pace is different. But I think writing's hard. It's not something that I enjoy very much. Can I ask a quick question? How do you... Um, ha- so, obviously, you teach, and then you write, and you, like, have this idea in your head, and you, you keep going back to it, and you kind of think, oh, my God, it's not fucking happening. Two years in, three years in. How do you just, like, carry on with that process, the kind of the mundanity of it and the kind of fitting it in when you don't really have the time. I, I just, you got to sit down and do it. You know, I kind of treat it like schoolwork in a weird way. You right, know, yeah. I remember I wasn't a great student, you know, but to sit down, this is what I want to do. And usually it kind of has just welled up to the point where I can't ignore it. And um, I don't know, I feel like this might change, but I've never started something and not finished it. I don't write very much. I kind of just write when I think I have something to say, you know, I don't write essays very often. And, you know, occasionally somebody will ask me and if 99% of the time I say no, if the 1% of the time is I realize I'm afraid to do it. Like I want to do it, but I'm afraid. And then I try to do that. And usually when I do those, those things have, there's some growth somehow yeah. when yeah. I do that. But um, yeah, I don't write very much. I just don't. But when I'm writing, I'm just, I'm all in. So talking about the things that, uh, Kind of when people read the book, they were surprising and they didn't expect. One of the things that I didn't expect was the, I thought some of the descriptions of kind of sense of place were really beautiful and lyrical and talking about kind of the darkness of the night when the moon goes, you know, when the moon isn't showing and some really beautiful stuff. And I just wondered, but I just wondered if you could tell us about kind of why or if a sense of place is important to the novel and what got you thinking about that. Yeah, that's... Uh... Sorry, that's a bit of a vague I had a question. beer, like, so now I'm just going to say shit I don't normally talk about. But, um... Half of me. <laughs> yeah. No, I had a beer before. I'm oh, not... Okay. I mean, so, I yeah, I'm such know. a big drinker, but, um... <laughs> yeah, that's, um... Yeah, stuff's really important to me. It's, like, one of the things that was really hard to do to get the book started is to get that weird community, like, absurd, feeling like something could act... All this stuff could take place. And, I mean, it's just... But it's so much, it's just memory. And it's, um, it's not like I spent a ton of time in California. I don't, but it's hard to talk about really. Uh, but it's so important to me, you know, it's, uh, <coughs> the place I figured out that I was depressed, you know, and, and you're depressed, you're kind of hypersensitive in a weird way when you're depressed all the time. Cause there are things that just stick out, you know, for whatever reason, good and bad. And I have like some little rituals I do when I go to LA, little places I go and things that just remind me of, good and bad things and we're my friends so some of it is just memory and like just making up what things feel like and trying to be artistic about it you know um but i think not in most good books but place for me is at least really important you know it's one of the things i talk about with my students because they never said it anything anywhere it's just all in their head <laughs> which is fine but turn your head into a place then you know yeah. so it's how do i do it it's some of it's just making the shit up. Some of it's research, you know, figuring out stuff. So like in the book, the bus stuff. So I'm like, yeah, you know, the bus was so important. That's like, it's like a pass. You get to go in weird circuitous routes, which is the way I talk, the way I think anyways. And what's that like to ride the bus? What's it going to be like? Um, how can I combine the bus ride with some other memories? And, you know, all this kind of stuff. And and then, you know, you, you get not romantic, you get nostalgic about it or uh, you overblow it at some point, you know, and you try to give a sense of this town. That, I don't know, like when you were talking, I was thinking about the part where they go up PCH and he sees the moon and he can hear all the TVs in L.A. click off. Mm. It's not like you really hear that, but it's my sense of how L.A. works on time when it goes dark, 
when it gets quiet. Because it's a city that kind of shuts down pretty early in a weird way. And it's not like a late night city. And it's, you know, it's a real couch base kind of weird city, you know. So, yeah, I, I, I can't really, yeah. Rebecca Solnit got a grant at the same time that I did. We got the same grant to do. She did this other project. She was talking about, I don't know what that book is called, but it's the map book about in the Bay Area, the San Francisco. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about then. Yeah, she did this beautiful book. And she was just talking about mapping, being very abstract. She didn't really know exactly what she was doing. But the way she was talking about maps just stuck in my fucking head. And I went, oh, you know what my book's about? It's about navigating L.A. It's just, you know, I always love maps. Uh, the Thomas Guide. You know, that's a real weird L.A. map. I don't know if anybody here is from L.A. and just knows what the, you've, you know, the Thomas Guide. I mean, it's like a Bible in a weird way. Still is, even with GPS and all this kind of stuff. And just like how important that stuff was to me. Get the Thomas Guide every year. That's where I live on this block. You know, it's just, I don't know, these crazy names. There's just so much stuff. And that just, for whatever reason, that stuff is just welled in me and just stays there for some Thank you. Hello, oh, thanks so, so much. much. Thanks. Thank you. Round of applause. I'm going to say thank you on behalf of the shop as well, Paul. Thank you, Lola. Thank you so much. For the books here, everybody. there's wine. There'll be air conditioning on in a minute if you're really lucky as well. <laughs> um, please, yeah, please stick around. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.